The reading for today is from John chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Well, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of John today uh, and next week. And then we're having a three week summer break in the Psalms with my dad, John Tyndall, preaching for us. And now we're in John 14. We find ourselves in the midst of one of the most intimate personal scenes in the entire ministry of Jesus. We're reading here an eyewitness account of what unfolded that Passover night uh, many years ago. And it's almost as if we're treading on holy ground. Chapter 13, which has just come before, there's been the Passover meal. And for some reason, the normal arrangement of a servant to wash people's feet hasn't happened. So Jesus himself has taken off his outer garments, rolled up his sleeves, filled the basin with water and washed, literally washed the, the feet of all his disciples. Uh, an extraordinary display of humility and service from their Lord and Master and that itself was a picture of the cross. Then he's he's been tr deeply troubled and distressed in his heart. He said that one of them is going to betray him. And he's indicated very subtly to a close friend among the disciples that it will be Judas Iscariot. And Judas has gone out into the night and betrayed Jesus. And the, Jesus then gathers them around and gives them this incredibly profound, simple, but um, profound lesson that they must love one another. The new command is that they must love one another as he has loved them. And hearing all of this, Peter, who's kind of the leader of the group, has spoken up and at the end of chapter 13, he's sworn passionate loyalty to Jesus. He says, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus has given him a, a reply that we might be familiar with, but it's actually quite shocking. He said, will you really lay down your life for me? 
Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Oh, no. Now, everybody heard this. Peter, he's the natural leader of the group. There are more references to Peter in the New Testament than to any of the other disciples. Now, all the disciples were equal, but Peter is a clear leader. He's a man of great bravery and conviction and courage. He can be rash and impulsive, but he's really a strong leader. Of all the people to lose their nerve and bottle it and disown Jesus. So probably the rest of them are now thinking, well, if that's Peter, what, what's going to happen to me? They're feeling confused about what they've just heard. They're feeling very anxious and upset. They're feeling distressed and you know they're soon going to feel a lot worse because within 24 hours their whole world will be destroyed. They're on the brink of a catastrophic failure. They will all desert Jesus. That failure brought on by intense pressure and fear and danger and they will lose their nerve and then they will be heartbroken because they will see Jesus their dear Lord and teacher crucified on a cruel cross. And Jesus senses all of this. And so now he speaks some of the most tender words in the whole Bible. Words of comfort, words of reassurance, gentle words, and they were written down for us too. Would you just think about this setting for a moment? It is Jesus who is heading for the agony of a cross. It is Jesus who will be betrayed and rejected. It is Jesus who is deeply troubled in heart and spirit. We've used this, heard this same word used in chapter 12 and 13, and rightly so. It would be reasonable to think, wouldn't it, at this point that the emotional support could be flowing in the other direction. Perhaps the disciples could be there for him. Yet on this night of all nights, facing all that he faced, the Lord Jesus is still the one who gives, still the one who comforts, still the one who instructs. What a saviour. And here's the message that he had for them. And it, these words are written down for us too. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. In, in view of all that he's just said, he knows what the, where they are and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And we need this medicine. We need it because our hearts are often troubled and we don't know where to turn. Our hearts are troubled by the problems of our society, by racism, injustice, poverty, crime, brokenness. You know, we're troubled by personal issues, ill health, disability, money worries, work stress, relationship problems. And you know, we're often troubled by things that actually haven't even happened, but we're still troubled by them. We worry that they might happen. The English poet John Keats once wrote in a letter, imaginary grievances have always been more my torment than real ones. Where do you turn when your heart is troubled? We have some false refuges that must be exposed and I want to mention a few of those false refuges now. There's the impulse to flee, just to, to escape. Get me out of here. I want to escape the trouble and pain and go somewhere else, anywhere else. Then there's the impulse to abdicate, to give up, lay down responsibility and the stresses that you carry. That's a false refuge too. There's the lure of temptation. The temptation to take an unethical shortcut, to tell a lie, to undermine somebody else, to make yourself look good or save your skin. Or perhaps there's the pull of an addiction, 
that will numb your pain. But all of these false refuges turn out in the end to be places of greater danger. So where should we turn when our hearts are troubled? Listen to Jesus again, John 14 verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. The medicine for a troubled heart is believing in God, believing in Jesus. That means trusting them with your life. So the way to have an untroubled heart is to believe in God and believe in Jesus Christ. And it's as simple as that. Or is it? Evidently, it's not that simple because Jesus knows that his followers will need more explanation. And so he gives that to them here in this chapter, some specific teaching about the kind of belief that will calm our troubled hearts. I've divided this section into two points. Um, I'm conscious I haven't in the second point even been able to cover all of the material in the second part of the reading. But we've got what we've got and I hope it's helpful to you. The first point is the promise of a place. And the second is the knowledge of the way. The promise of a place and the knowledge of the way. So the promise of a place. Read with me again verses two to four. My father's house, says Jesus, has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Now, verse two has a quite famous phrase, a famous statement of Jesus that in his father's house, there are many rooms. In the old King James version, it was rather grand. It was translated as many mansions. It's probably based on a mistake. The word really means many habitations, many dwelling places. And it carries the idea of a permanent home. Verse two, Jesus says he's going there to his father's house to prepare a place for you to live. So his going is good news for his disciples. It is to their advantage that he's going because he's going to prepare a place for them. And in verse three, he says, if he goes, then he's going to come back for them. He's not going to waste the journey. He's going to make sure they come and inhabit the place that he will make. And the goal of all of this is not really to have a, some kind of luxury penthouse apartment. The goal of it, the real goal, is to be with Jesus. Verse three, that you also may be where I am. He is our true home. So here's the first way to calm your heart. Reassure your heart with the promise of a place. So what is this place? It is a permanent dwelling in the Father's house. Now Jesus has used this phrase, my father's house, one time before in John's gospel. It's back in chapter 2 verse 16 and there he used it of the Jerusalem temple. It was a grand, glorious, beautiful structure. It had been built of the finest materials. In fact, the front of it was at the top was, was gold plated so it glinted in the sun. It was, it was really the glory of, of the nation and it was world famous. But Jesus, when he arrives in John chapter 2, finds that parts of the temple have been turned into a kind of market and he was outraged and he drove out the those who were selling animals and changing currency and drove them out and he said, you turned my father's house into a den of robbers. Now he doesn't simply mean that you, you'll have a room in my father's house, that he's going to somehow arrange for all the disciples to have a room in the temple with their own key to the shared bathroom. 
What he's talking about here is what the temple stands for, what it represents. Because the temple, the Jerusalem temple, was the place in the world where God dwelt with his people specially. It was the one place on the planet where heaven and earth met and connected. But as glorious as it was, that temple was just a limited local expression of a far bigger reality. It was a picture, beautiful picture, but a small picture of something infinitely greater that is coming on the last day, when finally heaven and earth are united. So Jesus, when he says his father's house, is really talking about the new creation, the world to come. That's where he's going to prepare us a place. Now, the Bible builds up to this idea of the world to come through its whole length. And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21, it climaxes with a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, of heaven coming down to earth. I'll just read. You don't need to turn to it. I'll read from Revelation 21. Then the writer says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That's the reality that Jesus' father's house refers to. So I want to ask, do you want to go there? To that world, the world to come. Here is the first medicine for a troubled heart. Believe in God, believe in Jesus and believe the promise of a better place that he's gone to prepare for you and will come back to take you to. Now, you know, somewhere deep in every human heart is a longing for a better place. I suspect, I think that this yearning, this deep yearning that we have is the thing that shapes and produces the most achingly beautiful music and poetry and art that we have produced as humans. It's the powerful drive that shapes the great political visions to change the world for good. It's a longing for an undiscovered country, for a land our hearts may rest. One of the great writers on this topic was actually not a theologian, but a man of literature, a scholar called C.S. Lewis. He wrote in one of his books, Mere Christianity, most people, if they'd really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. He's talking about the hope of heaven. In another one of his books, The Problem of Pain, Lewis wrote, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether, in our heart of hearts, we have ever desired anything else. It's the Father's house. And Jesus Christ has gone ahead 
to prepare a place for us and he will not forget us. He will not abandon us. He will come back to take us to be with him. Now that's the first point. That's the first thing you need to do when your heart is troubled is to think about the promise of that place. Whatever is going on in your life, whatever situations, however heartbreaking, however traumatic, however stressful, however incomprehensible, Jesus Christ has gone ahead and given you a guaranteed, firm, rock solid, secure promise of a better place, a place with him forever. A place beyond the skies. He will not forget you. We need to learn how to take this medicine and not let the current moment in our lives obscure it and not let our, ourselves and our hearts be dominated by troubles and anxiety, which they so often are, but to focus and think about and believe and trust in the promise of the place. But how do we know how to get there? How indeed? Verse 4, Jesus actually tells the disciples, you know the way to the place I'm going. And one of the disciples speaks up. His name is Thomas. Now, Thomas has had a bit of a bad rep over the years. You know, we've all given him a nickname, Doubting Thomas, because much later on when Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to the disciples, Thomas actually wasn't there. So he did miss a key meeting. And of course, that's one reason why you should never miss going to church. Now, some scholars think that his question here, his tone, is a little bit grumpy. <laughs> I don't know how they can tell that. Look what he says in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Now, I'm glad that Thomas spoke up here, actually, because his question prompted some of the greatest words that have ever been spoken. And here is the second point of this sermon, the knowledge of the way. Read with me in verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Extraordinary words. This entire verse is the answer to Thomas's question. Lord, how can we know the way? The answer is you do know the way because you know Jesus. Now I'm going to unpack those few little words, very simple words, but incredibly profound. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. I'm going to do them in a slightly different order. And I want to say you might need to fasten your seatbelts here because this here we're getting into some of the deepest thinking in the Bible. Jesus is the truth. What does this mean? He reveals God to humankind. He, Jesus, embodies the highest, the most supreme revelation of who God is and what God thinks and how God acts. He reveals God to us. Jesus, you might say, narrates God. He only says what God the Father gives him to say. Jesus also, we might say, demonstrates God. He only does what the Father gives him to do. Jesus is properly called God. Right back in the first verses of this Gospel of John, John begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So the Word, this person, the Word, was God, yet somehow was also with God. And later on in that chapter, John says the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus Christ, the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, had always been God. And so 
He is God's gracious self-disclosure to us. He's the word become flesh and we've seen his glory. That's what it means to say, or, or some, some kind of explanation of what it means to say he is the truth. Secondly, Jesus is the life. John 5 verse 26, Jesus says that he has life in himself. It's quite a mysterious phrase. What does it mean? Now, mere human beings, you and I, we can we receive our life. We're alive right now, but we got our life from God. It was a gift from him and he can remove it as easily as he gives it. And he will remove it one day. We're all going to die. So you might say that we are derived creatures. We're completely dependent upon God. We're contingent upon God. We depend on him for our every single breath. Not so Jesus Christ. He is self-existent. He's always the living God. He always was. He always will be. He has life in himself. And therefore, Jesus can give life to other people. And we know that in the Gospels, there are numerous times when he does this. He can give life to the dead. He, he did this with a little girl that had died. He did it for his friend Lazarus. He did it for many others. He did it many times. 1 John 5 says, Jesus is the true God and eternal life. He is not just the truth, he's the life. I hope you're still with me. I told you that we needed to fasten the seatbelts. That means that he is the way. Thirdly, only because Jesus is the truth from God, the truth about God, and he is the life of God, can he be the way for others to come to God. He's the way for every disciple to find eternal life and come and live in one of those many dwelling places in the Father's house. How is he the way? Some have thought of Jesus as a great example, and he was a great example. They thought of Jesus in terms of a kind of trailblazer who goes ahead and we have to sort of follow him on our own efforts. But that's not really the answer. The answer is Jesus is the way because he's the saviour. Jesus is the way because he's the lamb of God, the one who sacrificed himself to take away all our sins. Jesus is the one, the only one that can give life to the dead. So Jesus is the way to God because he's the truth and the life. So if you know Jesus, then you already know the way. So do not let your hearts be troubled. Because all of the really big things in your life are already taken care of. Jesus has made you the promise of a place. And secondly, Jesus has given you the knowledge of the way there. It's by knowing him. Now, for Christian believers, these are some of the most powerful and comforting words in the Bible. But for many people in our society, what Jesus has just said is deeply troubling. The only way? No one comes to the Father except through me. People look at this and they think, well, isn't this the height of arrogance? Hasn't this kind of exclusivism caused untold damage to people around the world? So many are troubled by this exclusive claim. They feel it's uh, arrogant. They feel it's dangerous and they feel more comfortable with the idea that all religions are really the same. They say, well, you know, all religions are sort of at the under the surface. They're all kind of doing the same job. They're all grasping at the same ultimate reality. Each one has got hold of a little bit of the truth. Sometimes this has been depicted as a group of blind people who are all blindfolded 
and each holding one different part of an elephant. You know, one's got the leg and one's got the tail and one's got the trunk. They've all got a bit of the picture. Now, if that's your position today, I'm really glad that you're with us watching this Grace Church service. And I want to offer you a few thoughts to reflect on um, respectfully, to ask you if you would reconsider that position. Because although on the surface it sounds very nice and very democratic to say all religions are basically the same, the study of religions shows that it actually really can't be true. If you line up all of the major world faiths side by side, they are deeply incompatible. I went to India some, I don't know, eight or nine years ago. While I was there in India, I was told by somebody who knew the culture well that there were 300 million gods in Hinduism. 300 million gods. That is absolutely incompatible with Islam. Islam is founded on the belief that there is only one God, Allah. So we might say, oh, well, at least Islam and Christianity are on the same page, but they're not. The Quran clearly says to Christians, calls them the people of the book, people of the book, say not Trinity. Because the Christian faith is based on an understanding of God that he is essentially three persons in one God, a tri-unity, a trinity of persons. And that is absolutely unthinkable to Muslims. And we haven't talked much about Buddhism, have we? Which has a concept of the divine that is absolutely different from any of the other faiths. So really, the major religions are simply incompatible. And let me also say that the view that they can all somehow be put together and they're all ultimately doing the same thing. What you're really saying is that you're in a position to assess all of the religions and all of the truth claims. So you're placing yourself above Jesus Christ and dismissing his truth claims. Could it be that that position is actually open to the charge of arrogance itself? Now, we've got to admit and own the fact that some Christians and churches have been arrogant in history and some of them are arrogant today but when you look at the context of the passage we're studying and see Jesus humbling himself and kneeling down and washing people's feet and then intentionally going to the cross and sacrificing himself for other people this is not the actions of an arrogant self-serving man so what that means is if Jesus followers if, if Christians are arrogant at all it is a denial of the very truth they are claiming to present we must never be arrogant. What we need is not a diluted, watered-down Christianity, but a deeper Christianity that brings us to our knees and makes us see that we too must be the servant of all. The Christian world view is that the living God has acted decisively in history. He has come in the person of Jesus Christ and that through Jesus we now can see God. And that is the only way. So if you ever wondered what God looks like, look at Jesus. That's what he's saying in these, these verses. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. It doesn't mean that Jesus and the Father are the same. But if you want to see God, you look at Jesus Christ. Don't come with your own preconceived ideas and your own cultural blind spots. Don't try and squeeze Jesus into your preconceived mould. He won't fit. Look at this man, Jesus, who washed his followers' feet. 
Look at this man, Jesus, who wept at his friend's tomb. Look at this man who went to lay down his life for his enemies. And when you look at this man, Jesus, you will see the face of the true and living God. So do not let your hearts be troubled. I want to speak now to Christians again. We've seen the passing of our dear friend, our older brother in the faith, Donald Lees, on Friday. And there's been an outpouring of the most wonderful recollections of Donald uh, on WhatsApp. And we look forward, when, when we can meet again, to holding a memorial service for him. I was thinking about how to conclude this service and thinking about an old man passing from this life. And it reminded me of a, a story by a man called Cormac McCarthy. It's called No Country for Old Men. Uh, it's also been made into a very uh, fine film by the Coen brothers. And the central character in this story is a man called Sheriff Bell. In the film, he was played by Tommy Lee Jones. And the story revolves around Sheriff Bell's struggle as an old man to understand the world that he now lives in. He notes that he's now 20 years older than his father was when his father died. And then one night he has two dreams and he wakes and in a hazy way he tries to explain them to his wife and they're really the key to the whole story. I had two dreams about my father after he died. I don't remember the first one all that well but it was about meeting him in town somewhere and he gave me some money and I think I lost it. But the second dream it was as if we were both back in old times and I was on horseback going through the mountains in the night, going through this pass in the mountains. It was cold and there was snow on the ground and he rode past me and just kept on going. He never said anything. He just rode on past and he had this blanket wrapped around him and he had his head down. And when he rode past, I saw he was carrying fire in a horn the way people used to do. And I could see the horn from the light inside of it about the colour of the moon. And in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead and that he was fixing to make a fire somewhere out there in all that dark and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he would be there. And then I woke up. The actor who played that character said, the speech is a contemplation of hope. That dream about however dark and cold the world might be, however long the ride through it might be, that at the end you know that you will go to your father's house and it will be warm, or to a fire that your father has carried and built for you. The last sentence is, and then I woke up, it's a contemplation of the idea of hope. Well, you know, in Jesus Christ, we have more than just an idea of hope. We have a guarantee. Do not let your hearts be troubled because he's promised a place that at the end you know you will go to your father's house and it will be warm and the fire will be built for you. And you know the way is by knowing, serving, loving, trusting Jesus himself. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we need to have our hearts calmed. There are many things that disturb us, disturb our peace, Many things that we become troubled by, distressed by. Maybe right now some of us here are in anguish. We ask that Jesus' words would sink in deep. The promise of that place, that world to come. The promise of the knowledge of a way of how to get there. Lord, we ask that these things would become reality for us. And that you would bring us great comfort today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.